1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This is Intelligence Matters with former Acting Director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
2: I think it's shocking that a military that a lot of us assumed, however you feel about the morality of the invasion, I think many of us assume that the Russian military would behave in the manner of a professional military. Right. And when you look at some of the things that occurred around Kiev, the kind of execution-style killings, obviously we have widespread accusations of sexual violence, of rape. I think that's very shocking. I think it's less shocking when you see a terrorist group do it. <laughs>
0: Holly Williams is an award-winning CBS News foreign correspondent. She has reported from around the world, including from numerous combat zones. She joins us today to talk about her reporting from Ukraine. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
3: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this your favorite seats
0: the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer
3: in minutes.
1: There really is no place like home.
3: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or
0: download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Holly, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to talk with you. It's great to have you on the show.
2: I'm honored and flattered to be to be asked.
0: So Holly, we want to spend most of our time on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but we always start an episode of Intelligence Matters by having our guests talk a bit about their backgrounds and their careers. We We hear from the many students and young professionals who are among our listeners that they like to hear about how our guests got to where they are today as it helps them, of course, think about possible career paths. So with that in mind, it seems to me that you've brought together a couple of significant interests. One is foreign affairs, and the other is journalism. And I'd love to ask you what prompted your interest in each, which came first, and how did you end up in journalism?
2: Uh, Well, I grew up in Australia initially in Tasmania, which is the island down the bottom. And then I spent my high school years on the mainland, as we call it, in Victoria, and It felt like a very, in many ways it was an idyllic upbringing, but Australia felt very isolated from the rest of the world and yet I was really interested in what was going on in the rest of the world. I was really interested in the news. I didn't really have very many opportunities to travel growing up. In fact, I I really just had sort of one opportunity for overseas travel and that was that I went on exchange to China in 1992 when I was 15 years old. I'd been learning Chinese at high school. I was very lucky to have this forward-looking high school program Principal who had decided to bring in a a Mandarin Chinese program, and China was a very different place in 1992. In many ways, still kind of closed off from the outside world. It was just three years after the Tiananmen massacre, which I had watched at home with curiosity and then, and then horror. And I was just captivated by China from the moment that we landed on the plane. I think I can still remember the, the smell. A great smell—the the, the different smell of China—when yeah. um, we landed, and so I was—I knew I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I knew sort of at that point that I wanted to pursue some kind of a future that centered on China and East Asia. What do you and think then I,
0: captivated you? What do you think captivated you about China?
2: It was so different at that point. You know, I was 15 years old. I'd grown—I'd grown up in country Australia, and then I was in—I was in Beijing, this this massive city. At that point. I mean, just so different. At that point, it was sort of, it was still this kind of sleeping giant awakening. I remember, you know, there w- there wasn't very much traffic on the roads. I mean, there were a lot of bikes at that point. You know, remember those kind of classic scenes of yeah, like that yeah. sea of bikes just pouring down these kind of six lane highways. There were still a lot of horses and donkeys on the road, and I was I was living partly in this in you know, a boarding school. And it was a very elite school in Beijing for sort of academically gifted children. So I didn't fit in at all. And then I would spend the weekends with this Chinese host family that was that was wonderful. And their story was fascinating. You know, they were a very privileged family in many ways, but until just before I'd arrived, they'd all been living, you know, with two children, you know, mother and a father, they'd been living in, in one room. And they had just moved into their first real apartment that had you know, a sort of two bedrooms and, and a living room and a real kitchen and a bathroom. That was a huge step up for them. And I remember going riding my bike with my my Chinese Guga, my older brother, who had already started work, and driving down the so riding down the third ring road, which I think at that point was still being worked upon. If anyone knows Beijing, it's now sort of in the center of the city, but it was still being built. And I remember they'd built the first tower of the World Trade Center, which is now, you know, very much in the heart of, of downtown Beijing. And I was 15. I didn't know what was going on, but I thought this is fascinating. Something is happening here. There's a transformation happening here. And just wanting to to witness it. Not at all at that point thinking that I might be a journalist. Just thinking I kind of want to be a part of this.
0: So how did you get to the journalism piece then?
2: So I can I think at some point maybe in my light, late high school years or at university I thought, you know, journalism would be really interesting, but I certainly didn't I didn't know anybody who was a journalist. I didn't have any of those kind of connections. But then I studied in China as part of my degree for a year. And then I was able, after finishing university, I was very lucky. I was able to secure an internship. And then I got offered a, a very junior position for, it was just for a year at CNN. But then I got offered a job as China producer um, for the BBC. I was completely unqualified for that position, but I was there and I spoke Chinese. And so I became the BBC's China producer, I think when I was 23, maybe maybe 24 years old, as a result of that, I was able to travel to Afghanistan after September 11th, which was a fascinating experience. And then I worked; I started doing on-air work when I went to Sky News, which is also a, a British a British news channel. And then also, actually, kind of by accident, ended up working for CBS News.
0: So you were in China for 12 years, and I'm wondering, you know, how you saw the country change, and 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 I'm wondering. When you hear people today talk about China as the big strategic threat that the West faces, how you think about that given your 12 years there?
2: So in terms of the the change, I was there sort of on and off between 1997 and 2012, and then I was there sort of fairly briefly in 1992, 1993 as an exchange student, and it's just difficult to put into words the kind of transformation that I saw in China, going from this kind of sleeping dragon, going to, to a dragon that is very much awake and hungry, and, and just thinking about that, what that means in people's lives People who could only dream of, you know, buying a motorbike, um, that you know, they now drive cars they own apartments. Um, Before the pandemic, they went on overseas holidays. This is not everybody. The people who you see going on holidays, Chinese people on holidays that you see in in the West are very much part of a a small elite in China. But even ordinary people's lives have changed. People who were tied to the countryside, kind of hand-to-mouth farmers, they've been part of this mass movement of people to factories. Which for them, are, this is a really sort of aspirational job. They're getting off the farm. They're earning an income. They're able to change their lives with, with that money that they earn. So it's, it's hard to put into words how much it's changed. The streetscapes have changed, the way that cities like Beijing and Shanghai look. When I first went to China in 1992, they looked they looked poor. I mean, they looked they looked backward. They don't anymore. <laughs> you know, they, they they are the opposite of that. They look like um, the future in many ways. And I feel I was really privileged to be there in the late '90s and early noughties, because also there was a kind of i think there was a kind of a youth quake happening in those years young people were seizing not just on new economic freedoms but new social freedoms they were going out they were interested in music they were getting together in ways that they hadn't been able to in previous years and it felt like that there was a lot less government interference in their lives
0: and then how about the 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 strategic competitor piece of where we are today
2: i think that Part of it is inevitable. You know, when you have a country like China, population, you know, well, we don't really know, do we? Um, but, you know, around one and a half billion people. And it's, it's wide awake. And it's people want, they want what we have. You know, I mean, that is the essence of it. Chinese people want the same kind of lifestyle we have, which I think is completely understandable. <laughs> but, but the resources to do that. The resources to to build a car for every Chinese family that wants them, the, you know. I used to report on illegal logging in places like Africa and Southeast Asia that was that was being sent to China. Why was it being sent to China? Because Chinese people want the nice wooden floorboards that we have, you know. They just want we have, but but the resources to give Chinese people what what people in in, in wealthy countries have are inevitably and are inevitably going to cause disruption. So I think the idea that China is a is is disruptive, China's emergence is disruptive is 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 just inevitable in many ways. I think there's a separate issue which is I guess I guess the kind of Chinese triumphalism which we've seen in recent years is the sense coming from the government and many Chinese people themselves? This sort of rising nationalism in China—that yeah. China—that there's a kind of a kind of renaissance has happened in China, a kind of rebirth. It's gone from being a sleeping giant to being, you know, an, an an emerging superpower or just or just a superpower. Full stop. I think that's that's something separate, and it's something that you know that the Chinese that kind of nationalism is something that the Chinese government encouraged. Certainly after 1989. Certainly after the Chinese government could no longer really claim to be a to be a, a socialist regime. Nationalism was something that they used to to sort of maintain a sort of sense of consensus within 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 the Chinese nation. Yeah.
0: So Holly I wanna to get to Ukraine, but just one more question. So you go to Afghanistan after 9-11 and you end up reporting in war zones in South Asia, in the Middle East, in North Africa ask you one question about that. You covered the battle for Raqqa when the fighting was at its peak in 2017. And you've called that experience scarring. And I'm just wondering if you can walk us through why.
2: Yeah, it was scarring. We were actually, um, we're in Raqqa. We'd been there before. We'd actually walked into Raqqa during the fighting for Raqqa when the SDF, there were the sort of Syrian forces that were being backed by the US to go and fight, go and fight ISIS. When they had started chipping away at ISIS control of, of Raqqa, which was the so-called ISIS capital in Syria, we'd actually walked into Raqqa with the SDF when they had started sort of clawing back territory from ISIS. But then we were there for the last two or three weeks of the battle, and we were there on the day when the SDF claimed victory. And just to give, give you a sense of what it was like the entire city was just smashed to pieces. I don't think that there was a single building that I saw that wasn't battle scarred. The roads were just strewn with rubbish. When we went into, the thing that really struck me is that we would go into, in the days before it fell, we would go into SDF fighting positions and they would be they would be inside people's homes. I mean, this was, this was urban warfare. This was street-to-street fighting. And we would go into an S- – I remember one time we went into this SDF fighting position and it was clearly a kind of upper-middle-class family's dining room, their dining table. There's a beautiful dining table and dining chairs and glass cabinets were still there with these fighters, you know, positioned on their balcony looking, looking for ISIS operatives that were still in the city. So it was the sense that this kind of normal city, this functioning city had been completely smashed to pieces, firstly by ISIS occupation and then by this this water reclamation. The other thing that was really scarring is that we on various occasions saw the remains of ISIS fighters that had that had blown themselves up. And the the SDF fighters, there were there were a lot of um this is very upsetting. I don't know if you, you'll want to put this in the podcast or not, but there were a lot of stray cats in the city. And the SDF fighters were leaving the bodies of ISIS fighters on the street as a kind of sign of disrespect. They didn't want to bury them. And they were sa- they said to us, stay away from the cats because the cats are eating the dead bodies. Mm. So I felt when I when I went to Raqqa that I looked into a very dark place that kind of shook my faith in... I guess my fellow humans. Um and I think when you've when you've seen that kind of thing you can't you can't unsee it.
0: So Holly let's let's talk about Ukraine. You've been going to and reporting on Ukraine since Russia's invasion in 2014. A lot of people don't know that there was actually an invasion in 2014, right? Russia took Crimea, first land grab in Europe since World War II. They started an insurgency In the East, they've been providing support to separatist rebels there, fighting the Ukrainian government. So in a sense, right, the war between Russia and Ukraine started eight years ago, and you've been covering it. So a couple of questions about that period. Take us to the front lines of the insurgency in the East. What was that war like?
2: So I actually started covering Ukraine um, during the Maidan protests, which were in, oh, wow. in, the, in the capital, Kyiv. Yeah, 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 yeah and I went there. Yeah. I went there when those protests were sort of had just started. It was the middle of winter. It was freezing cold. We were kind of dashing in and out of buildings to cover it. And miraculously, the, the hardy Ukrainians were out there for hours at a time in the freezing weather. And I think that that was a, a very shocking story for me to cover. I hadn't been to Ukraine before. The protests were against a government that was a Ukrainian government, Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, that was regarded as as pro Moscow, pro Russian. And people went to the Maidan, the square, the kind of symbolic heart of Kiev, to protest against him. And the people there were saying, you know, we don't we don't want to be within moscow's orbit we don't want to be part of that world we we want to be first of all we want to be independent you know in, in a real sense but also we want our orientation to be towards the west towards europe and yanukovych was I mean, those protests ended up being met with with violence there were dead bodies sniper fire there were dead bodies on the maidan which is a pretty shocking thing to see in a, in a european capital and then ultimately Yanukovych was toppled. And I, I remember, it, I, the, it might have been the actual morning after he fled the country, we ended up at his, his house, his mansion in the suburbs of Kiev where he had this kind of a, I remember driving around in a golf cart and seeing what, what seemed to be a kind of private zoo or at least a private menagerie featuring quite a lot of ostriches. It was certainly a bizarre story. And then as you say, after that Russia annexed, invaded Crimea. That's why the US always uses this language that before this invasion that it was warning Russia not to reinvade Ukraine because it wanted to make the point that Russia had already invaded Ukraine. And, and then after that, I spent a lot of time in eastern Ukraine. Um, in 2014, when there was this sort of separatist uprising, I guess, in eastern Ukraine, separatists, armed separatists going around and seizing control of government buildings in the far east of Ukraine. And these people were Russian-speaking, sometimes identified as ethnically Russian, they were very unhappy that Yanukovych had been toppled. And, and many of them said that they were in, in some way oppressed or kind of they felt like sort of like second-class citizens in Ukraine as Russian speakers. And that ended up becoming a war which was, the, was then felt fought for several years and is still being fought with these sort of breakaway parts of Ukraine in the country's Far East. And I've spent a lot of time on that on that front line, which is tr- sort of trench warfare. It looks like something out of um, – or it looked like something out of World War One.
0: Mm. I'm also wondering to what extent during that entire time and perhaps l- leading up to the most recent invasion, the extent to which you interacted with reporters from Russia?
2: I think not at all. Um, not at all. A lot of – a lot of interactions with Ukrainian journalists but I don't think I I can't think of any with with Russian journalists I'm sure there were Russian journalists there covering what was happening in eastern Ukraine in 2014 but I don't remember interacting with them at all
0: and then how did how did Ukraine change during during that period from 2014 to to 2022
2: well I think interestingly you know it was the country was fighting a war, a war that Ukraine says has claimed, I think, you know, between I think thirteen thousand or fourteen thousand lives at this point. So, you know, you would, you know, we would spend time out east in these kind of trenches that look like something out of out of World War One. There were people all over Ukraine who would say that they had family members who were fighting out there. People were were upset about it, anxious about it. But on the other hand most of Ukraine was was peaceful. And interestingly, that whole experience in 2014, the Maidan protests, Russia annexing Crimea, Russia backing separatists in the Far East, this war that was going on, I, I think had the effect of actually crystallising for many Ukrainians what they wanted for their country, which was, for many of them, definitively not being a part of Moscow's orbit, becoming, becoming members of the EU Um, for many people joining NATO, wanting that security of of joining NATO. And, you know, in many ways, Ukraine felt like a very kind of go-ahead place. There were really interesting things happening in Ukraine. You know, young people were opening interesting businesses. They were doing interesting things to kind of tackle Russian disinformation. It felt like a country with a very kind of clear vision. For what it wanted to be.
0: We're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Holly Williams.
3: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: So, Holly, then the most recent Russian invasion happens. Where were you at that moment and what was it like?
2: Actually, in the days just prior to the invasion, I'd been out east on the front line with the Russian-backed separatists because there had been a kind of escalation in violence there that the Ukrainians, and I think the US were also saying this was a sort of Deliberate attempt by Russia to provoke the Ukrainians, perhaps as an excuse for an invasion. So we'd been out there; we'd been filming with people who had had a rel- or even though they lived in close proximity to the front line, had had a fairly peaceful time in recent years. There hadn't been shelling in their villages, and suddenly there was shelling, um, and they were they were terrified. Their you know their, their houses had been damaged. So we'd been out covering that, and I think the the night before the invasion. Um, when we were hearing through our sources um, that an invasion was increasingly likely, perhaps inevitable, we decided to pull back from that front line for security reasons to the city of Kharkiv, which is um, also in eastern Ukraine and very close to the Russian border. But just just sort of, it felt like a safer place to be. So we pulled back to Kharkiv. We spent the day there, um, and then we were there at on on five a.m., at five a.m. the next morning when the, the the Russian bombing started, reporting from a, a rooftop in Kharkiv.
0: So you've you reported from sites of some of the most brutal fighting. I'm just wondering if you could give us a sense of the degree of brutality we're talking about here.
2: Well when you look at some of the things that occurred in the the areas around Kiev, I think I think they're very shocking. You know I, I think it's shocking that a military that a lot of us assumed, however you feel about the morality of the invasion, I think many of us assumed that the Russian military would behave in the manner of a professional military. Right. And when you look at some of the things that occurred around Kiev, the kind of execution-style killings, obviously we have widespread accusations of sexual violence, of rape. I think that's very shocking. I think it's less shocking when you see a terrorist group do it. But when you see, as I say, a, a military that I think we expected to behave in a, in a fairly professional manner, when you see them doing that, and, and doing that a lot, I think it's surprising. Do you, have a, do you have a
0: sense of whether that brutality comes from the character of Russian soldiers or from orders from Moscow?
2: I think... I think we don't know the answer to that or at least I don't know. I think I think that acts of brutality by um, illegal acts of brutality by soldiers, sexual violence, I think it's I think it's a part of nearly every every conflict. But if you're a, if you're a professional military, I suppose what you hope to do is hold perpetrators to account, to send the message that that behavior is unacceptable. What I would say is I haven't seen any indication on the Russian side that 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 message has been sent?
0: Um, Holly, have you had the opportunity to interview any captured Russian soldiers?
2: No, and I I avoided doing so because I I felt that in the context of this conflict, I had some questions about about whether it was right for the Ukrainians to be to be. Putting Russian captured Russian soldiers forward to the media. Mm. I think mm. it's different when you're dealing with a terrorist group, but these were members of a of a of the military of a of a neighboring nation who'd been captured. So I I, I there were opportunities for us to interview them that I, I didn't make use of.
0: You've um you've seen some of Ukraine's fighters, you know, up close. How would you describe their mindset having spent so much time in the country and so much time in the east were were you surprised at all at how hard they fought
2: they i would say they're just highly motivated i don't think i've ever seen such a a motivated group of people i mean having spent that time in in the in the trenches out east before the invasion Look a lot of people were saying to us both in the trenches both within the military and and civilians were saying I'm going to fight. You know, I we we will fight from we will have a you know a sniper out every window in our city. We are not letting the Russians take our country. Um but you can't know if how serious people are about that until the invasion actually happens. Right. Um I think it's pretty extraordinary the extent to which ukrainians have come together to defend their country one of the most amazing things for me was that in the in the sort of hours and days after the invasion we were driving we then decided to drive from kharkiv back to the capital kiev where we had another another team we wanted to sort of get together with them and make some decisions about how we were going to cover the invasion that was happening immediately in the hours after the invasion these checkpoints just sprung up, manned mace, mostly by volunteers across the country. I mean, just local men for the most part with their own, their own guns that, that just sort of pulled together seemingly out of, out of thin air. I thought that was, that was absolutely extraordinary. And then since then, we've spent time with, with volunteers, so men and women from all walks of life who've just kind of dropped everything to fight the Russians.
0: So do you believe that the Ukrainians can ultimately win this?
2: I think it depends what you mean by win.
0: I guess either either militarily force the Russians out of Ukraine or inflict so much pain on them that Putin makes a decision to withdraw.
2: Right. Um, I guess that's
0: what I mean by win.
2: Yeah. So... I think there are so many different scenarios that could play out here. Vladimir Putin seems bent on continuing this this assault on Russia's neighbor, despite the fact that I think Russia has been embarrassed militarily, yeah. Um, yeah. that its military looks kind of incompetent, despite the fact that that Russia is facing kind of economic catastrophe. He seems determined to push on with it. What are his goals? What would satisfy him? It seems highly unlikely that, impossible that Russia at this point could seize control of Ukraine in its entirety. There's a lot of speculation that what he wants is to sort of consolidate his hold on parts of eastern Ukraine and join that up with Crimea in the south. If he can do that, if he can sort of move what was already a front line with the Ukrainians forward a bit and join those two areas up, would, would that be enough for Vladimir Putin? You know, would that would he stop sort of pushing for more territory? Then, in which case, then th- there is no diplomatic solution. That's just the, that's just the, the new reality. Um, but then
0: he still he still loses. You know, Ukraine to the West, right? So his fundamental objective is still not achieved, which is why some people think he he will fight on, right?
2: So. I think there are sort of two interesting points to make there. One is that everything that Vladimir Putin seems to have done in Ukraine has, as far as we can tell, had the opposite effect to what he really wanted, which is if what he really wants is to bring Ukraine back into Moscow's orbit or even to kind of make it once again part of part of a sort of Russian empire, everything he's done since 2014 has had the completely opposite effect. Because what we've seen since 2014 is, is seemingly is Ukrainians become more certain that they don't want that, right, more certain right. that they are Ukrainian, more certain that their future lies in Europe and allied to the West. So I think the, the, the first point is that, I mean, if that's genuinely what he wants, he's, he's not going about it the right way. I think the yeah. second point is, that in, is the possibility, at least, that Ukraine becomes Vladimir Putin's Afghanistan that this invasion and its and its economic impacts you know, mainly via via sanctions ultimately and this could be looking into the you know into the sort of long term future become something that ultimately is very damaging to Vladimir Putin and perhaps perhaps even brings about his downfall
0: yeah you know he wants to you know as well as anyone that he wants to go down in history right as One of the great Russian leaders, you know, one of the leaders that made Russia great again. And it's actually going to be just the opposite, right? He's going to go down in history as a leader that significantly weakened the country. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters.
3: Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: Before the most recent invasion, you spent some time with him. Indeed, you took a trip with him to the front lines in the East. And I wonder at that time, you know, what was your sense of him as a leader? And then, you know, fast forwarding to where we are today, were you surprised that he has turned out to be the Churchill like figure that he's become?
2: So I think even before we spent time with Vladimir Zelensky, and this is – we spent time with him last summer. Um, I think it was June of last year. I mean, you don't meet him without thinking this is going to be an interesting character. The man was a comedian. I mean, that's his background. He, you know, he started, as we I think we all know now, he started in a TV series about a kind of everyman who became the unlikely president of Ukraine, and then off the back of that, he in real life became the oh, <laughs> unlikely president of Ukraine. You so can't
0: make this up. You
2: can't make that stuff up. So um, so we you know, we were we knew we were gonna meet a sort of interesting character. And the plan was for us to fly to eastern Ukraine and then from I think we flew into Dnipro in eastern Ukraine and then from there to Chopper close to the front line, which we did with the Ukrainian military. And then we first of all we spent a day with him on the front line in the trenches and, and did an interview with him. And the main topic of conversation was um, that he very much wanted to join NATO, which you can imagine at that point might have been the top of his his agenda. And it was interesting that he had, he clearly spent a lot of time on the front line and he really enjoyed interacting with the troops. And he felt that it was important for him to see what was going on, that it was kind of a boost for their morale. But the most interesting thing about that trip was something completely unexpected, which is that before we even went to the front line, we went to the city of Kriviri, which is Vladimir Zelensky's hometown. It's a kind of very Soviet looking industrial town in in sort of southern or southeastern Ukraine. I've spent a lot of time there recently, actually, um, since the invasion, because it's in close proximity to the front line, sort of south, close to the city of Kherson. So we drove there. I'd never been to Kryvyi before, and we were told that the president had gone to have breakfast with his with his parents, with his mum and dad. So mm. we were kind of waiting with the with the rest of the the cars and the officials and the security downstairs and suddenly this official came down and kind of scooped up me and my cameraman and said, the, you know, the president wants you to come for breakfast. This is not the sort of thing that normally no, happens when happen you're with yet. a world leader. This does. This is not normal. <laughs> right. So we we go right. into this sort of old, crumbling Soviet-style apartment block. The kind of Soviet-style apartment block you see everywhere from Kabul to Pyongyang to Beijing to to Ukraine. We go up in this kind of creaky old elevator, and we get out, and it's his. It's him, and it's his mum and dad. And um, I was sort of went to wash my hands in the tiny little bathroom with the President of Ukraine, and then was shown into the kitchen where and met his parents um who were very sort of jolly people. and and we went we I sat down and had breakfast with with President Zelensky and his mum and dad, and his chief of staff, Andre Yermak. and it was truly one of the most exceptional experiences I've ever had as a as a journalist. They were drinking what did you have to eat, what um, did you have to eat? it was great food, including sort of homemade cookies. Chocolates. And then they, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, maybe even earlier. They broke out the Georgian brandy, I think, in my, <laughs> in my honor. Um, and they were it was just a very, you know, I think he doesn't get to see his parents as much as he, even at that point, sure, as much sure. as he likes. And um, as I said, they were very jolly people. And I was sort of interrogating them a little bit about um, who they were. And his father's a professor of something very clever and technical, I forget, at the university in Krivi And I said, well, you know, how did you feel about him becoming a, comedian and they they said that they had not been very happy about that at first <laughs> it was not really their first choice for their son but that and then I said D- did you prefer him being a uh, a comedian what, what do you prefer comedy or, or politics as a career and they said that they I think from memory the father said that he had actually in retrospect preferred comedy because it was he thought it was safer which so is did you see
0: yeah did you see something in him at that time that that told you that this guy was was would in a you know a tough situation stand up or or not was no. it the opposite
2: no I, well, it wasn't the opposite i thought he was interesting and charismatic and very generous the time that he spent with us i thought it was quite clever for him to invite us in to have breakfast. Yeah, you know, sure. he, he wanted to, that to be on American television. He wanted Americans to sort of see who he was and where he'd come from. I thought that was a very sort of canny thing for him to do. But no, I had no idea that he was that. I mean, he was spending time on the front line, but at that point that front line wasn't very active. So I, no, I had no indication that, as you say, he was going to become this kind of Churchillian figure.
0: Um. So Holly, I'm going to ask you in the lip- A couple minutes we have left here about being a war correspondent. And I, I want to talk about your safety, which is obviously a priority for you and your team and for CBS. And I'm just wondering what kind of planning goes into keeping everyone as safe as possible.
2: Um, I think the short answer is a lot of planning and planning in a kind of generic sense for wars that we don't know about, making sure we've got the right equipment, the right training, um, the right people um, who are experienced and hopefully make good, smart decisions. And then planning for – in in the lead up to the invasion, we were doing a lot of planning. And there are some things I can't tell you about for security reasons, but just making sure that we had – the things that we needed, the people that we needed, that we'd thought of different scenarios. That said, of course, there are always situations where things take you by surprise.
0: In fact, your your team was on its way to Makariv um, traveling in a convoy with Ukrainian soldiers um, when you were suddenly stopped, what happened?
2: So we had been told by the Ukrainians that they had taken back control of Makariv. But as we've seen both in Ukraine and other conflict zones, often taking back control doesn't mean, <laughs> doesn't mean completely taking back control. I had a very similar situation in Iraq. So we got sort of to the edge of the town and suddenly at a, at a sort of checkpoint, they said there are, there's a drone up ahead. That They later said actually there were several Russian drones up ahead and we were turned back. Uh, I think we stopped initially. They told us to get out of our cars because they want you to spread out so that there's not one single target. And then they decided that we should sort of go at high speed back to a forested area where we again sort of, and then we spread out in the forest. And there was shelling pretty, pretty, pretty close by. So that was one of those exactly one of those situations where we had a plan. We um, one of those situations where we had a plan, um, but you can't you can't plan for everything. It,
0: and and in those moments is the adrenaline pumping for sure yeah definitely so so a number of reporters have lost their lives while reporting in Ukraine when when you hear about one of those what goes through your mind
2: i think it's it's incredibly painful because those people are doing you know what we're doing they're trying to bring this story into people's living rooms and tell people why it's important and then you know, they they lose their lives in the process. I think, as a fellow journalist, it's it's incredibly painful to hear about that.
0: Holly, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's been incredibly insightful, and thank you for what you do. You know, so many people thank thank me for my service. You know, journalists and intelligence officers are are kind of similar, right? They're trying to bring the truth. They're trying to find the truth and and tell it, just tell it to different people, trying to protect sources. So, you know, thank you for what you do to, to bring these stories to us.
2: Oh, Mike, it's a team sport and I work with the most extraordinary group of people, but, um, the thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Welcome. Thank you. That was Holly Williams. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.